I'm truly humbled by being able to speak at family camp again. It is an awesome privilege. I do want to introduce my family. There are 16 of us or something like that up here. Um, I will not tell you the ages of my children because they're older and that would not be right. But our oldest daughter, but if you would stand, that'd be great. Our oldest daughter, her husband lived in Cedar Rapids, Krista, and then our, our middle daughter, Bethany, and her husband, Josh. And uh, let's see, our oldest son, Joseph, and his wife, Bethany, live in Saint, or Charles City. I'm trying to get all this right. It's really only the one thing I only have to remember is my wife of 32 years. That's the one I get right every time, no matter what. <laughs> well, you can stand if you want. And then our, our middle son is not with us. He had to work this week, may come up later on the week. And then our youngest son, Caleb, and uh, the girl he, you guys are all praying for, Brooke, is with us. And then our youngest daughter, Brianna. We also have six uh, grandchildren. Um, they're not here. They're back in their classes. But if you want to know who they are, they are the cutest. Just saying. Uh, they're the cutest. Tonight, um, uh, when Scott asked me to share, um, my mind immediately went to the attributes of God. And that has a lot to do with our journey over the last probably five and a half years. Um, we were very comfortable um, for 13 years in a, in a church in Adel, and we were just enjoying ministry. And uh, in January of, of 20, or, yeah, 2013, um, we were introduced to a video series, Behold Your God, by John Snyder. Excellent series, if you can get your hands on it. Um, and he's got a second sequel to it, The Attributes of God. And as we, we were actually kind of uh, doing it for ourselves, just my wife and I, uh, each week we'd sit down and watch another video, it's a 12-week video series, and we were kind of doing that for ourselves and then kind of previewing it for our church to use in some of our small groups. And as we walked through that, um, it really began to um, work on me. In that whole video series... Um, John introduced us to the idea that we have a God who we ultimately don't know. And that may be one of the biggest problems in Christendom is we have fashioned a God who looks a lot like us. And we think we know him and we tout that we know him, but in fact, we don't know the God of the Bible. And I, I began to, as we walked through the first couple of uh, sessions, I said, wait a second, I've been a Christian for a long time, I've been a Baptist all my life, I should know God by now. And yet, as the further we went into that, the further I was convicted that I didn't necessarily know a lot about God. And so that's why the the attributes, that's why I chose that subject of the attributes. That was in January of 2013. I didn't realize it, but in, in February of 2013, uh, the church came to me and they said, hey, we, we think it's time for a change. 
And I said, uh, okay, I, I'm not convinced of that, but um, th that, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that if that's the way you're thinking. And so we worked through that several, um, several meetings church, with, church, with the church, with deacons, et cetera, et cetera. And we finally came to the conclusion that, yes, it was time for a change. And so I resigned in May of 2013 with no place to go. Well, I had a, a, uh, basically a full-time job at the school district. Uh, driving a school bus, and if that doesn't lose your, make you lose your hair, nothing will. And uh, from then uh, forward, we um, preached in several different churches over the uh, course of the next, the whole summer. And in uh, late, late June, uh, we preached in a little town called Yarmouth. Anybody know where Yarmouth is? All right, if you know where Yarmouth is, you really know your geography well in Iowa. Yarmouth is a town of 63, not 1,000, not 100, 63. You don't get there by accident. It's not a destination. It's not on the way to a destination. We double the size of our town every Sunday. It is a great little town. We're not even incorporated, in fact. In fact, we're right next to the town that unincorporated, uh, the first one in Iowa ever to unincorporate, Mount Union. It's a great little town. Uh, we literally pulled in the parking lot of this little church. And by the way, Matt, I, I pastor the First Baptist Church of Yarmouth. There is no Fourth Baptist. There's no Third. There's no Second. In fact, there's not even a Second Church. We're it. There's another building, but no church. Um, we pulled into this little town, and my wife literally, I looked at my wife, and I said, Yarmouth is not on our map. It's not on my radar at all. And she goes, you know, she goes, it's not on mine, but you know this is where we're going to be. And God put those, all those things together, and we moved to Yarmouth later on in August and have been in that ministry ever since. This evening, I want us to open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be talking about the, the God that's incomprehensible. And I want to, as we walk through this particular passage, one of the things I want us to understand is really how little we know about God and how much there is to learn about God. In this particular passage, there's two great questions. So let's, uh, would you stand together with me and let's read, I'm just follow along as I read the first 13 verses, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west of the side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. And when God saw, um, or when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. He said, here am I. And he said, do not come near, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face 
for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard the cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out uh, into that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come before me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Israel, you shall serve the God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the privilege again to open your word tonight. And we, we are in awe of who you are. We need to understand who you are. We need you. And we need you to even learn about you. And so I pray that our time together as we look at this particular passage, we would, we would understand, be able to comprehend just a little glimpse of who you are tonight, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Two great questions are asked in this particular passage. The first one, Moses asked God, who am I? And I just, the, the short answer is nothing. Now, I'm going to give you your testimony for Sunday when you get back to your church and they ask you, hey, what happened at camp? You can say the food was great, I got to ride on the jumbo dog, and I am nothing. That's your whole testimony. And, and so when you go back, say that and, and clear the space so you know exa- they know exactly what went on at camp. A great camp uh, testimony. Moses asked this question, who am I? And and notice that no answer is given. It's kind of a rhetorical question. I just want to look at three principles from that particular question. We are man. Moses was a man. We are man. We are limited and finite. There is nothing that of, of real value to God in us unless God does the work through us. No value. Secondly, I want us to understand we cannot grasp him. We cannot comprehend him. When I, when I told Scott the... The title of the message of Sunday night, I said, incomprehensible. And he says, I don't understand. Exactly. And you know what? I don't know that I can help you with that. Because we cannot grasp him. Thirdly, we cannot attain to him. 
if we are to understand to him, ultimately, he has to do the work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. He has to do that work. I recently shared um, the gospel with my neighbor. My neighbor is uh, in his, well into his 80s. And I've shared the gospel with him a number of different times. And uh, pastors before me have shared the gospel with him a number of times. So I know he's heard the gospel. And the last time I shared the gospel with him, was, was, we, we spent a half hour just was sharing the gospel. And he got to the end of that, and, and it's almost like he didn't even understand a word I said. And so as I walked back into my house... I just prayed, God, you have to reveal this to him. You have to reveal the gospel to him. There's nothing I can do to explain it any further. I'll try. I'll do it. But ultimately, you have to do the work in his mind. You have to do the work in his heart. And that's the same way for every one of us. There's no way we can grasp God. The second question, he asks in verse 13, and I'll put it in our language, who are you? He's asking God, who are you? Who am I going to tell the Israelites? Who am I going to tell Pharaoh? That the name, what's the name of him that sent me? And, and he doesn't mean in respect, disrespect to him. But understand the context of what he is about to do, what he's about to share with all the Israelites, with the Egyptians, with Pharaoh. Egypt's, Egyptians had hundreds of gods. They could not fathom one god doing all that had to be done by God. They couldn't fathom that. So they made up in their minds these gods that did certain things. And so they had a God of this and a God of that. And we have the, the plagues that were actually the picture of some of their gods. So they have hundreds of gods doing all kinds of different things. And so this could look to them to be just one more God in this great plethora of gods. And so... Moses is compelled to ask God, so in this multitude of gods, who should I say sent me? And God answers that with the word, one word in Hebrew, two words in English, I am. I am. Now there's four characteristics I want us to to notice there's probably more, but there's just four characteristics I want to explore tonight as we think of the word of the of the two words in English, I am. The first characteristic is no name given to God is going to be adequate. No name given to God is, we can't even conjure up any kind of name that's going to be adequate for our great God. Isn't that awesome? You don't want to have a God that you can know completely. Because he'll look an awful lot like you. You want a God that is incomprehensible. That cannot be described. 
That's the kind of God you want. And that's the kind of, of name that God gives to, Abraham, or to Moses to tell to the, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, to Pharaoh. In fact, in other places in Scripture, there are, there are times in, in Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob is wrestling with God, God wouldn't give Jacob his name. In in the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord, remember he comes to Manoah and his wife and says, hey, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. And um, he declares, the angel of the Lord declares his name is too wonderful. And then in the book of Revelation, the rider on the white horse, no one, knows his name. This God, the great I am, no name is adequate. The second characteristic of, of the great I am is um, the name that he did give is the most descriptive name you could give in the human language. Now, a name that sets him apart from all those other gods. This is it. The I am. It speaks of his self-existent. He's a self-existent one. He has always existed. If we, we, we read a passage this morning and tonight from Isaiah 40. And how there are gods that are fashioned out of wood and gold and all kinds of stuff. If, if uh, they came into existence, but God never did. He always was. And that's hard to comprehend. We haven't always existed. And we won't always exist, at least in this feeble body. The gods are going to be done away with someday completely. Along that same lines of his, the self-existent one, it is, it is absolutely necessary that God exists. Matt brought us to that this morning. There are some day that we're all going to perish. We're all going to die. And our memory is not going to last much beyond the grave. Isn't that kind of humbling? Aren't you glad you came to camp? We aren't always going to exist. There is some day that we're going to perish. And not only that... It is absolutely necessary that he exists. All of creation would not change if none of those gods ever didn't ever exist. None of creation is going to change. If we weren't here on this earth, creation wouldn't change. But if God was not here, creation would change immensely. It wouldn't exist. So it really doesn't matter if we exist. 
And we exist because of his will. That's humbling too. That's awesome. He doesn't even have to work at it. It's just part of who he is. So he's self-existent. He's, he's, secondly, he's independent. He's independent. He doesn't depend on anyone. He doesn't depend on you. And some days that's probably a good thing. He doesn't depend on me. He is absolutely independent. And yet, the great thing about that is, is he wants us to be involved in the ministry that he has going on all over the world. He says, I will deliver. And we have the op- the audacity, we who are nothing have the audacity to say, hey, let me help. He says, I will build my church. And we have the audacity to say, hey, here's an idea. Let's try this. He doesn't need that. He's absolutely independent. Thirdly, he is unchanging. We are not. There is a point at which uh, most of our lives we get older, right? Most of our lives. We get older. We get wiser. We get stronger. We get maybe even better. He doesn't. He never gets wiser. He never gets stronger. He never gets better. He is everything that he will ever be. Everything. He, for us, time is a a series of changes. You ever notice that? It's a series of changes. For him, time is nothing. In fact, for him, he doesn't change because he doesn't need to change. The last thing I want us to understand in this, in the arena of, of who are you is he is an incomparable to everything. He is absolutely incomparable, incomparable to everything. We compare ourselves to everybody else. We want to be faster, we want to be stronger, we want to be smarter, we want to have bigger, we want to have better. We compare ourselves to everything else. He never compares himself to anything. In fact, in fact, when he is compared to things, for instance, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he is really stooping. That's an awesome God. That is the great I am. Let's think through. God answered Moses' question with the word I am. In in Hebrew, the word is hayah. 
And what I find interesting, most interesting in this passage as I think through is the, is the, the theology. But then you know that theology has to be practical. And it is practical. God's attributes have to be applied to us. We have to understand in some approximation them. But I want us to understand some things. I want to ask some questions in application of the great I am of the Hayah. Who benefited from this statement of I am? And how did they benefit? So the last part of our time tonight, we're going to look at, at four groups of people who benefited from the answer, I am, the answer, Hayah. First person to benefit from that answer, I am, was Moses. Moses, if you remember from the text, when God asked him to stand um, and, and in his place, and, and in verse 11 he says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out? He says, But I'll be with you. Yeah, but in, in verse 13 he says, But if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, God of your fathers, I mean, what's I going to do? He says, And ultimately, if you, if you read the context, Moses didn't want to do this. Who am I? And, and rightly so. Any one of us that was in that same capacity, set in that same, in that same uh, context, none of us would be qualified to do what Moses was about to do. So when he asked God that question, who am I and who are you, he was, I, I don't think it was a matter of pride. I think it's a, a, a little bit of at least a humility. There's no way I can do this. But here Moses is benefiting from that answer. It really ultimately took Moses out of the spotlight. He didn't want to be in it anyway. It just took him out of the spotlight. You say, you just tell him God sent you. You just tell him the great I am sent you. He is, and not only that, but he is now connected. He is now connected to an infinite power and wisdom which he would need, desperately need, to lead this great group of people out of Egypt. The second group of individuals that benefited from the answer, Hayah, I am, was Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Remember, they had several hundred gods. This introduced them to the one and only God. This introduced the Egyptians to the one and only God. They already had hundreds. But you see, they didn't have the one. And they needed the one. And this one wasn't just another or a big one 
or a, a, a one of many, this was the great I am. The self-existent, independent, unchanging, incomparable God. But I also gave them an opportunity to repent. The third group that, in, that benefited from this particular answer was Israel. And it reminded them of who God is. Think through this, the, the context of where Israel had been. This self-existent, incomparable God that they are now, maybe for the first time in their life, realizing that exists, realizing that maybe they had not worshipped, they had been adopting over the course of those years, they had been adopting the Egyptians' cultural views of God. And, and if you hang on, I'll get to that, back to that in a minute. In fact, how do we know they were adopting those cultural views? Over time, from Joseph, their view of God had weakened as they added to him all the attributes of the Egyptian gods. They needed to be reminded that this is the God. And our, the case in point, in fact, their, their view of God had weakened and as, as they added to him the attributes of the Egyptian God. Soon, the Bible tells us, nobody knew him. And the case in point, if you go forward a few years to uh, the time where they're... Um, receiving the Ten Commandments, and Moses is up on the mountain. Moses comes down to the mountain, and they had made a calf. And where do you think they got the idea for that? The Egyptians. And the same gold that was going to be used to... And, and by the way, they borrowed that from the Egyptians. And that, to me, is one of the amazing stories of, of all Scripture. How are Egyptians going to let the Israelites borrow as they leave? That just makes no sense. Where did they get all the materials to build the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies? From the Egyptians. They also got the gold to do the, the golden calf from the Egyptians. They needed to be reminded that this is the God. There's no other. And the plagues were sent to restore in not only Egypt and Pharaoh to tell them of the omniscient, omnipotent God, but also to remind the Israelites of the great I Am. As you think about his independence, God's independence, Israel had become very, com 
excuse me, very comfortable with where they were. They were slaves, but Egypt really had everything else they needed. Shelter, protection, food, all sorts of things, and they had become very comfortable with that. The best of everything that the world had to offer. And yet, as you think about who God is, God has infinitely more than anything the Egyptians could ever offer or anybody else for that that matter. And then this unchanging God, God had, Israel had forgotten the promise given to Abraham several hundred years before this. I will bring you out of the uh, of Egypt and send you into the promised land and give you a land flowing with milk and honey. And you know that promise wasn't yet four hundred years old. And they had forgotten that. And the last group, I think, that can benefit from this, the answer to this question is you and I. Because oftentimes we have adopted a cultural view of God. Case in point, if you would walk up to anybody at any given time, um, they would, in the course of conversation about God, probably try to convince you that God is a God of love. So why does he do this? Why does he do that? Why does, and then the million-dollar question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And by the way, if you want an answer to that, ask them how, how they define bad and how they define good. Because all things work together for good for them that love God. And by the way, we are not good. Moses' first question, who is man? Nothing. Nothing. We have adopted the cultural views of God, and that is very watered down, and we have even brought that into our churches. And we are very comfortable with, every, with where we are. When we started to walk through the Behold Your God series, just my wife and I, we were very comfortable in, in Adele. Very comfortable. We were, we, were, we were looking forward to retiring there at some point. And God said, no, we're not going to do that. We are living as if we have forgotten the promise that Christ is going to return and rapture his church. We aren't living as if eternity's values are in view. That promise is now some 2,000 years old. And we treat salvation, a lot of us treat salvation as a get out of hell free. Much like the Egyptians were treating that promise as a get out of Egypt free. 
And yet God has so much more to offer, and we're going to settle for that. If you were to describe eternal life, think of how you might describe that. And I'm guessing that most of you are thinking somewhere along the lines of life that goes on forever, everlasting life, or something similar to that definition. Let me remind you of what Jesus describes eternal life as. In John 17, his prayer, after Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is his definition of eternal life. Eternal life is this, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God and know Jesus Christ, that is eternal life. Now, if I can uh, take some... some uh, um, liberty here this evening. This is how I would describe it. God gives you and me each a lifetime. However long that lasts, he gives us a lifetime to get to know him. He gave us his word, he gave us creation, and he gives us a whole lifetime to get to know him. And then after that, he gives us all of eternal life to get all of eternal life to get to know him. At the end of eternal life, you with me? At the end of eternal life, we will still have more to learn because God is incomprehensible. There is no way we can understand him, but he, has want, he, he wants us to. He wants us to get to know him. That is eternal life. So, what does that mean? Because ultimately, God's attributes really won't matter unless they, we realize what they mean to us. And I just want to mark down four things. We must become increasingly aware of how really ignorant we are when it comes to the knowledge of God. Even Socrates and Einstein admitted that they knew nothing about God. Secondly, we are closer, listen to this, we are closer to knowing nothing about God than knowing anything about Him. Thirdly, you may know more than you knew about Him 10 or 20 years ago. But you are no closer to knowing everything. No closer. And lastly, 
we must not be ignorant or arrogant in what we knew, do know compared to what others know. So the question comes tonight, where are you in your knowledge of God? Are you willing to admit that you know very little about God? Are you willing to admit that you have adopted some of the cultural views of God and maybe implanted some of your own views? Maybe, maybe God in your mind looks an awful lot like you. You ever get to one of those places in your life, well, if I was God, I'd do it differently. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later on this week. Where are you in your knowledge of God? But maybe even more importantly, do you even know him? Do you even have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ? That question is of utmost importance. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to look at Scripture tonight and maybe after looking at this passage, we just feel shambles. Maybe even ashamed. There's no way we can, I can know the, all the hearts, but Father, I pray that as we work through this week of, of looking at the attributes of God, reali realizing we can't know everything, in fact, the, the things that we do know will be very, very minimal. But I pray that this might be a springboard into a deeper study of who you are, a deeper awe of who you are. And may we return to our homes different from how we came to camp. To you be the glory. In Christ's name, amen.